We've all heard the expression rise from the ashes. Well, it dates back to ancient Egypt and references the phoenix, this mythical bird with plumage that lives up to a hundred years. And near the end of its life, it settles in a nest of twigs that burns ferociously, reducing the bird and the nest to ashes. And from those ashes, a fledgling phoenix rises, renewed and reborn. In many ways, this is a metaphor for many of the stories I share and chatter that matters. A metaphor for your life. We all go through hardships and darkness. Happiness is crushed. Everything feels like a heavy fog. Our activities become our obligations. And at times, our smiles are painted on. If we're fortunate, these times are fleeting. We overcome them. They become character building, lessons in life, exhilarating and life-defining. But there's no magic wand. And sometimes there's no escape from our circumstances. That is the reality of another metaphor, when the cards are stacked against you. But I believe in the human spirit and its ability to rise from the ashes and renew. There's no guarantees, and overcoming what seems to be insurmountable is the anomaly, not the norm. But it does happen. And the stories must be shared as they inspire all of us to keep dreaming and to keep doing. And I have a story for you today. It's a story of a woman who through her entire childhood faced murder, physical and mental abuse and betrayal. But she found a way to rise from the ashes and to search for peace. In doing so, she found her true calling. And that's to help others. What is the purpose of life? The purpose of life is for us to be tried and tested so we can grow. You don't learn as well when things are easy. Her name is Shelley Edwards Jorgensen. And she's the author of an incredible book, called Beautiful Ashes, a true story of murder, betrayal, and one woman's search for peace. And I must be honest with you, I'm not sure how this interview will go. Can I get to all that matters so that I don't minimize or sensationalize her truth? You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Shelley Edwards Jorgensen, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks, Tony. I'm I'm so happy to be here today. And so, Shelley, time and time again, you've stated that you never set out to write a book. Surviving life was your goal, but you found a much higher purpose: helping others stay positive, maybe find their way back. How how did that come about? It came about. Uh, it was a long process. I um I had to come to terms with everything that I had been through first. I had to heal myself first. And then I was actually encouraged by everybody who heard my story to say that, oh, well, this needs to be a movie or this needs to be a book. And um, and I had uh, inspirational courage uh, and in- encouragement too. I was I don't want to jump right into it, but I, I was prodded fr- by my mother, actually, uh, much later. And I felt inspired and I, and I knew that I had a unique position that I could speak from to help people. You know, I'm an engineer, so writing is not my forte and I'm dyslexic. <laughs> so I had to, uh, partner with a, a a friend who became my ghostwriter. And it was a nine-year labor of love to get to publication and a lot of hard work. I actually had to go back to therapy to even be able to articulate um, all my thoughts and feelings uh, that I experienced throughout my entire history. I want the audience to really understand who you are and who you were before a tragedy that we're about to share. So before we go back to that moment in time 
where you realized you would never speak to your mother again. Tell me a little bit about what your childhood was like. What was your relationship with your mom, your sister? Just it, give me a little bit of Shelley before circumstances that few can imagine took over. Well, I was a, a three-sport athlete. Uh, I I grew up in upper middle class suburbia of Detroit. We we actually lived in, you know, one of the desired uh, neighborhoods, even in my own town. It was one of the most desired neighborhoods. You know, on the outside, everything looked like the white picket fence. Uh, nobody suspected what was really going on in our home. My sister and I both were very active in, like I said, athletics and and my my mom was our biggest champion. She never missed anything we were ever in. Uh, my parents were uh, had tons of friends. As a matter of fact, uh, Gordy and Colleen Howe were my parents' uh, bowling partners. And you know, I dusted their personalized gift that my that they gave my parents my whole life, and I didn't know that's who it was from. You know, Tom Monahan, who was the the founder of Domino's, was was friends with my mother growing up, and my mom helped him get started in the pizza business. They, I remember my parents dressing up in togas and like Greek little uh, uh, head things to run the pizza booth for the the charity event at the church every year. So, so from the outside, everything was great. You know, I've had people since they've read my book that I that I knew um, most of my life. They weren't really close friends, but they were they were friends nonetheless that said they envied me, that they wanted to be me. And so that's what was that was what was portrayed on the outside. But the inside was completely different. So take us inside that fence. I mean, I grew up with a bipolar father was an alcoholic and we tried to hide everything we could. And you almost went to school denying maybe the night before, but yours was even, even more severe in terms of what was happening inside those walls, wasn't it? Yeah. And, you know, and, and you can't minimize anybody else's experience because of your own, because even a little uh, violence and dysfunction is not okay. Uh, you know, so my, my father was a Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde alcoholic. And so he, he could, become very violent when drinking. And therefore, every day was a risk. And as I got older, the drinking got worse. As I got older, the violence got worse. Uh, my parents were um, married just shy of 25 years when my dad ended up murdering my mother and burning our house down. You know, I was 15 years old. So they had been married for 10 years before I was even born and eight years before my sister was born. Now, my mother had had several miscarriages, but still the abuse started at the beginning. I, I talk about in my in my book, an event that I learned from my aunt long after the fact that happened six months into their marriage that was very severe. And, you know, it was a completely different time. But the stigma of the situation still exists. It's it's completely different than it was in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, but it's still not okay. I want to, because we just sort of talked about when well, my dad murdered my mom and burnt down the house, and I think it deserves a little bit more conversation. I mean, from what I understand, you're at a playing sports, you're at a practice with your sister, and a neighbor shows up in a panic, and they say to you, 
your house is on fire. How old were you when that happened? I, I was 15. I was a sophomore. It was, so it was October of my sophomore year of high school, which was 1985. Don't do the math. I'm, I'm 52, about 53 now. So, um, my sister was 17 and she was a senior. And so I kind of have to back up a little bit to, to give a little scope of the context of that day. Um, my sister had a class the, the first two hours of the day at a different high school in our city. And so normally she would take the bus there and back to, to do this special office procedures class. I don't know. They probably had computers or something and ours didn't. <laughs> you know, this was the eighties. And so, uh, this particular day, my, my grandmother was actually in, in England visiting, uh, family. And, um, so my sister had my, my grandmother's car and she, uh, drove to this class instead of taking the bus. And on the way back, her and two of her friends that were riding with her stopped at a party store, just like, you know, normal teenagers would do, doing something dumb to be late to class. And they ended up shoplifting beer. Well, that is kind of the inciting event that snowballed the day out of control. My dad had to pick my sister up because she was arrested. And because my dad was working afternoons at the time, which um, means he was home during the day. I hear the rumor mill starting that, you know, Lisa got arrested. And I'm like, oh, no, this this isn't good. You never rock the boat because you're at risk when you rock the boat. And especially by this point in time, because by this point in time, when my dad was alone all day, he would drink. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Joining me now is Shelley Edwards Jorgensen. She has this radiant personality and a heart that beats with possibility and perseverance. And I just can't understand how that's possible, given the childhood she lived. I arrive home, I walk in the door, and there my dad is in his bathrobe still. He should be getting ready to walk out the door to go to work. He's drunk. I start this conversation with him just as I walk in the door and he's crying. I've never seen my dad crying about and, and asking me, where did I go wrong as a parent? Where, where should I start is my first thought. But, you know, by this point, I was very good at keeping my mouth shut. So I said nothing. I had called my mom at work to arrange the carpooling situation for basketball. She asked me a question that I regret answering. Did dad leave yet? And I said no. And she wanted to talk to him. I, I yelled down. I told my dad, mom's on the phone. I immediately come downstairs to eavesdrop on at least his half of the conversation. Because again, I know that there's... There's danger brewing. I hear my parents' conversation, but I only hear what my dad is saying, but I also know what my mother is saying. So my dad tells my mother what happened with my sister. Naturally, any parent whose 17-year-old just got arrested for shoplifting beer is going to be pissed off. My mom was mad, and my dad had a very surprising response is he wasn't mad at my sister. He actually, by this point, felt like the police had threatened and scared the crap out of them enough that she didn't need more punishment. 
he also um, had made a promise to my sister that he would say nothing to my mother before the three of them could sit down together and talk. So he was getting angry that my mother was getting upset. And I think he was afraid that she was going to blow his cover and say something to, to Lisa before he did. I knew I had a major, major problem. My sister should have been coming home from her practice right after because she had my grandmother's car. Next thing I know, the garage door is opening. I'm hibernating upstairs and I hear the garage door open. I'm like, oh crap, I need to create a distraction. I get out my geometry book. I say, mom, I have a, I have a geometry test tomorrow. I have a question. Well, I didn't have any question. And so we sit down at the kitchen table, literally five feet away. My dad's still sitting at the built-in desk in the um, kitchen, still drinking his Manhattans. And next thing I know, the car honks in the driveway. I kiss my mom goodbye, tell her I love her. I run out the door and that was it. I get to the high school and there sits Lisa in the gym. Tony, I I don't talk about this in the book because I didn't know it until this year or well, last year when I had a discussion with my sister and I find out my mom had to have hung up with my dad, immediately called the basketball coach and told the coach to make Lisa stay for my practice. She knew she was going to have a conversation and a fight with my father that day. And she wanted to have it without us. I start practice partway through, not very far. I'm running out the hall to get a drink and I run into my neighbor. She didn't even go to my high school. So it was really strange that she was there. Her mom's like, well, we came to pick you up because there's been a fire at your house. Then panic sets in. Lisa and I run out to the car. We get in the car and they're telling me, well, you know, the, the fire, um, is under control. The, the fire trucks are there. Your dad is at our house, you know, blah, blah, blah. They're trying to pacify that everything's, um, fine. Ironically, this stupid song, uh, the roof, the roof, the roof is on fire is on the radio. My sister singing along to this song. As I'm asking the question of, where's my mom? And they're telling me, oh, she's not home from work yet. It was in that moment, I hit my sister on the leg and I see, I look at her, I say, Lisa, be, I'm like, shut up. Mom was home when I left. Lisa's face turns white. Both of us instantly knew in that moment that our mother was dead. And that my father did it. How did you even begin to cope? I mean, this is the, the one parent that you're, you're rock. This is the person that goes to every practice. This is the person that purposely kept your sister away because she wanted to protect both of you. It must have been, I mean, how do you even process? When did you find out that in fact your intuition was correct and your mom was dead? We arrive on the scene because we lived in an affluent neighborhood, you know, that makes news headlines. So, so all the major news networks were there filming. There was crowds of people. Police had the roads blocked. We weren't even allowed to approach the house. It took hours for them to come tell us. Uh, the fire was very severe and my mother was very severely burned. You were convinced, you and your sister convinced it wasn't an accident. Oh, yeah. We we knew it wasn't an accident, even though my dad, to his dying breath, denied 
that he did this. I literally watched my my house on fire on the 11 o'clock news that night. They're already telling the world that they know it's arson and that some 50-year-old woman is is dead. <laughs> the first autopsy came back as natural causes, which just solidified my dad's continual lie about what happened. The autopsy was wrong. Did you know when your father was lying? I mean, growing up with this sort of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, was it ingrained in your DNA when you knew your dad was oh, absolutely. not telling you the truth? Absolutely. And, you know, just the situation alone, I, I knew it was impossible. There, there was never an occasion that it escalated to that point that it didn't escalate further. Hundreds of examples of extreme violence where I physically was involved in, in separating my parents and saving my mother's life. I, I can't even begin to tell you how many times I heard my father threaten to kill us and burn the house down. I can't even tell you how many times I was involved in, in breaking up a fight and where, I mean, as I got older, my mom started, um, can, consulting with my sister and I and talking about how one of these days you guys aren't going to be here and he's going to kill me. And we would plead with my mother saying, oh, please don't leave. I mean, that's that's how dysfunctional and broken it was. My mom had ways out. She was a highly educated, beautiful woman. My grandparents were well off. Uh, my, my When my dad went to prison, we had four houses and six cars and no debt. So it wasn't about money. It wasn't about finances for my mother. She didn't want to be the first divorce in the family because that was the culture. How much of that was also, though, you pleading with her to stay because you didn't want to also be stained with divorced parents? I don't know. Because, you know, like I said at the beginning, my parents were married for 10 years before I was even born. You know, it was 20 years into her marriage before... These conversations started happening at least 20 years. I was probably 10, 11, 12 years old when those conversations started. Oh, we could leave. We could get an apartment. You know, we won't have the same lifestyle, blah, 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 blah. Well, by this point, we're, my sister and I are totally ingrained in the toxic environment. You know, it's kind of like the metaphor of, you know, boiling a frog. Everybody who witnesses the end event especially when it ends in murder, wonders, how do you let it, how do you, how do you not get out? If, you know, or if this happened to me, I wouldn't put up with that crap. Well, sure, that's true. If you, if you started at, at that point, but you don't start at that point. You know, most of these narcissistic abusive relationships start with love bombing and manipulation on a very subtle level until you become dependent. Most women become completely financially, emotionally and mentally dependent. They become completely broken down and at a loss. And so, you know, it becomes if you become the frog. If you were put in at the end, at the end result, you would jump out immediately. But when when you start and you start in warm water that's comfortable and inviting, and the heat gets turned up and up and up and up, soon it's boiling and you're dead before you realize you're even hot. Coming up, Shelley Edwards Jorgensen, who tries to put everything behind her 
is called back to her hometown to testify against her father in his murder trial. Hi, this is Tony Chapman, host of the radio show and podcast, Chatter That Matters. Did you know that only one in five youth with a mental health illness can get access to the care they need? Well, a big shout out to the RBC Foundation and RBC Future Launch for supporting over 150 youth mental health organizations. And in doing so, they help youth and their families get the care they need and deserve. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. Shelly Edwards-Jorgensen is my guest today. She's a beautiful soul who writes this wonderful novel called Beautiful Ashes, a true story of murder, betrayal, and one woman's search for peace. Where I feel so much for you, I mean, obviously, all of this, but you have to live with your dad after this happens. How is that possible? I mean, how, what was it like? I mean, you've got a monster who's taken away the person you love the most in the world and you know it in your heart, but that's that's kind of how society worked back then. I didn't know if I was going to come home to him passed out drunk or angry or what. It was a nightmare. And I'm having reoccurring nightmares at this point. I'm feeling like I left my mother to die and like there was something that I could have done to stop it. And that was my fault. And then on top of it, and I talk about this extensively, is, you know, we moved into the house right behind our house. That was weird. I could look out my window and see my burned out house. Then my dad started sending me to the house for canned goods, which was a horror show. I mean, I don't need to go to a haunted house. There is not a haunted house that you can put me in that would be scarier than what I experienced going into that house by myself at night, in the dark, knowing my mother was murdered in it. Your dad gets arrested. How did that make you feel? Would you say it was about time or was it? did you suddenly realize that this is the only parent I have? This is the best I've got? Or were you just... I mean, what was the emotion when that happened? It, at the time, this is the only parent I got. I, I'm holding on to the shreds of my family. I mean, I've lost my mother. I've lost my home. I've lost every worldly possession. I'm being humiliated publicly. Can you imagine what the rumor mill's like in a high school? We didn't even know he was getting arrested. We came home and found him not home. And we knew it was strange because by this point, he was there every day. There was a plate of spaghetti dumped in the sink and the car was in the garage. We had no idea where he was. The uh, uh, answering machine has messages and it's my aunt saying that my dad had been arrested and, you know, you need to go bail him out in the morning. Well, who the hell leaves two teenage girls to spend the night in alone thinking about bailing out their father the next morning for murdering their mother while looking at their burned down house? The interesting thing that I found that was beautiful in your book, the angel that touched you was your mom from heaven. And the first time that happened was the first basketball game after your mom's funeral. I said I was a, a basketball player. Well, nobody can see me, but I'm five foot four. So I was a guard. We're playing at an away game. So we're not at my home gym. I steal the ball right before halftime. I'm on this breakaway. And, you know, and, and this was, this was the first time in my life that my, that my mom wasn't going to be there. Next thing you know, I, I hear her voice 
And I, I don't just hear her voice. I feel her spirit. I feel her and I hear her voice cheering for me. And I looked and I saw her standing there among the rest of the parents where she normally would be. I, of course, bricked the shot, which is was unusual for me. I'm sure my coach was wondering what the hell happened. All I remember is the ball dropping. I'm not looking in the stands anymore. And again, this sensation washes over me. My mother's voice is saying, Shelly, I love you and everything will be okay. That was it. I knew at my core that that had happened, but there was no way I was telling anybody because I'm like, I've, I've got to be going crazy. I don't think I've ever shared this story, but when my, after my mom died, and I always say she died of old age at 53 because she carried our family. She came to me in a dream, unlike any other dream I've ever had. And it was so vivid. And she had this little impish grin, which she, she had once in a while. And she was eating a tuna fish sandwich and she hated fish because she was forced to go into a convent during the depression. And, and Friday night fish was just the most revolting thing. I said, mom, you're eating it. And I cook for her all the time. I was the chef in the family. I said, mom, you're eating tuna fish. You don't like fish. And she goes, up here, I love everything. And she disappeared. And that brought me so much peace, that dream. We're going to go back now and say, so your dad's been arrested, but it takes two years before it goes to trial. And he's denying everything. But the reason he gets convicted, even though his lawyer is very good at knocking a lot of this testimony out, is the testimony you bring in that courtroom. What was it like to go into the courtroom and testify against your dad, knowing that your dad was there? Horrific and traumatizing. I didn't think I was going to have to testify. The only time I talked to the police was the very day after the fire. Uh, less than 12 hours, as a matter of fact, I'm at the police station answering their questions with my dad's criminal defense lawyer. So what innocent man uh, comes to the police station with a criminal defense lawyer 12 hours after an accidental fire and death? So the lawyer is hovering over my shoulder because, you know, I'm the last person home. So I'm the most credible witness to either contradict or confirm my father's story. You know, the police didn't even know to ask the right questions through the course of their investigation. They were told about the domestic violence through my grandmother and my aunt and my mother's friends and people who knew what little they did know, which was horrible what they did know. And they never came back and talked to me. So, you know, I'm still a minor. I, by this point, I had moved myself to California because I couldn't handle it anymore. You know, because my dad started going after my sister. I had to stop him from killing her. It was just a disaster. And so my dad calls me up and says, Shelly, you need to come home to, to testify in court on Monday. He buys my plane ticket to fly home on Friday. He gives me his address that you have to go talk to the lawyer to get prepped for court. So I arrive at this lawyer's office. She starts talking to me, presenting evidence that I've spent the last two and a half years um, not knowing and two and a half years in denial, trying to believe my dad's story that he left the house to go shopping for heating supplies. My mom had a heart attack, dropped a cigarette, which my mom only smoked when she drank, and caught the house on fire. 
this lawyer is is showing me a picture of a blood stain on the on the living room rug, not the rug, the carpet. Asking me, was this stain on the on the carpet before you uh, left the house? No. Would you have noticed it? Uh, yeah, and I'm I'm pointing to the picture. I'm like, I walked right through there, and so then she proceeds to tell me they took that picture the night of the fire, and when they went back. You know, days or a week later with the crime lab to take a sample to verify uh, that it was blood, the carpet was missing. How, in an active crime scene where you know it's mar- um, arson for sure, and a 50-year-old woman is dead, so I, if I was a cop, I think I would be f- suspecting murder. And how do you not secure a crime scene to the point that a carpet is ripped out of a house? Then she starts... Um, asking me all these questions about all these horrible events, I'm wondering how the hell does she know that my dad used to threaten to kill us and burn the house down? I'm reeling because now it's blowing up my whole bubble of denial that I was trying to shelter myself behind. Now I'm realizing, crap, in two days I have to testify for the prosecution And not only am I just testifying for the prosecution, it's the first time in my life that I'm going to have to even tell a living soul any of this stuff that's been happening my whole life. And I have to do it in open court in front of my father, and I have to go home with him that night. So I'm on the stand risking my life literally to tell, to answer these questions. And I had to grapple with Am I going, am I going to be honest? Honor my, my mother? Or am I going to claim that I don't remember crap and protect my father? And how did you make that decision? Two days of not sleeping, talking through things with my friends that were being supportive of me. You know, the one is kind of ironic. You know, my, my mother's thing was I would get in 10 times more trouble. If I tried to lie about something, than if I told the truth. And my mother would always say, the worst thing I could do was lie to her. I mean, with all this evidence, with the courage of your testimony, your dad manages to get it to reduce from uh, to second degree murder instead of first degree murder and arson. He gets 13 years in prison, died in prison after nine years. How did you feel about the verdict? And what did you think about the fact that it didn't matter because he died in prison. I didn't even know until I started writing the book and I went back. I mean, there's 4,000 pages of manuscript or testimony. I literally risked my life to say what I said because my dad's in the courtroom. They're using me to, to, to prove first degree murder. Well, I was having such a hard time on the stand. The judge is yelling at me. He's at, he's telling the prosecutor to get me water. So very early on in my testimony, he takes a recess and, and excuses the jury. And so the jury is out of the room when I'm giving him all the evidence they need to prove first degree murder. Well, unbeknownst to me, my dad's lawyer And the judge and the prosecutor had a sidebar conversation when when I left the room and everybody left the room to throw out my testimony because I couldn't remember an exact date. I could tell them that 
It was the summer of 1976. I was six years old. I couldn't remember as a six-year-old an exact date that I remembered my dad first um, threatening to kill us and burn the house down. I remember the event. I remember fleeing the house. I remember it was summer because it was warm in the pajamas I was wearing. I remember it was 1976 because the car that we were in, but that wasn't enough. So your dad dies after nine years. I personally would go, he deserved it. How did you feel? Because I think you've got such this beautiful heart that somehow still finds love where everybody else would have squeezed it out. I had stopped communicating with my dad because I had to um, because he was so toxic and and I had to give myself some space to, to stop the abuse. I had gotten to a point where I was trying to reconnect with him and I didn't even know he was sick. And then he dies. It was another parent I didn't get closure with. I didn't get to say goodbye to. I still loved my dad. I still love my dad. I've, I've forgiven him. I hated what he, I hated what he has done. But where does the accountability start? My dad was an alcoholic for a reason. His father was a, a violent abuser and he was an alcoholic. His father, you know, I mean, he was an orphan. I mean, everyone's got a story. So I've learned that you, you don't know enough about anybody to judge anything. You don't know what emotionally people are capable of handling. You don't know how they, their thoughts and processes work because no one is exactly like you and you don't know anybody's complete history. So where does the accountability begin if you have generation after generation after generation of trauma? You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman presented by RBC. My guest today is Shelley Edwards-Jargonson. Her father murdered her mother, but she found a way to forgive him. Most people in your circumstance, and we haven't even got into sexual abuse. We don't have time today, but I just want to let the listeners know you have never had an easy path in life. You've had some of the most horrific things happen to you, but you write this book, Beautiful Ashes, One Woman's Search for Peace, and one of the most beautiful quotes in it says, the glass is refillable. It's not half full. It's not half empty. It's refillable. You've risen from those ashes, and I want to know how. That's the whole reason why I wrote the book. It's the whole reason why I I try to post my life lessons three times a week on social media. It took me a very, very long time to to find the right tools for me to to get through this. I was miserable for decades. I, it wasn't until my mid-30s that I finally found the right trauma therapy that worked for me. I started as a freshman in college doing talk therapy and on and off as, as I could afford it. You know, I'm an orphan at this point and, and, uh, just struggling to survive. I, I sought help because I needed help. I, I, I was suicidal. I, I mean, in your book, you said you prayed every day to die. Again, from the outside, by my mid-30s, just to give you a little bit of scope, I had graduated with my bachelor's degree in engineering. I owned my own home. I had my dream job at Ford Motor Company. I just had graduated summa cum laude with my MBA. From the outside looking in, again, it would look like everything was fine, but it wasn't fine. Nobody knew how miserable I was, even my best friend that I lived with didn't have any clue because I always put on the happy face. I always was the person to try to make others feel okay. 
even today, friends that lived the horror show of my teen years have have told me, Shelly, you were the one that made us okay. You were the one that that made everything seem normal. I could recant my story and not shed a tear. The first counselor I went to after I told my story, she had to go talk to somebody because she was in tears. And I wasn't. I finally... I found some trauma um, therapy that was actually working for me and that I didn't have to articulate every detail because I couldn't articulate every detail. I was so closed down emotionally. Therapy is not a one size fits all. There's many different modalities out there. And so if you are struggling, don't stop at the first thing you try. There's talk therapy. Now EDMR is a common therapy. That was one that I did that they're now using um, at the VA for PTSD that wasn't mainstream at the time that I was doing the bulk of my my healing work. I did NET, which is still not a mainstream therapy. I did cranial sacral work and neurofeedback and all of these other holistic modalities. And those were the ones that reached me. I always believed in God, but I decided I needed to actually trust him. I read this book called Believing Christ, and the quote that still stands out to me today, and I actually reference it, I think, in the book, is that the question is not that do you believe in Christ, like do you believe that he exists? Do you believe him? Do you believe that his atonement is powerful enough to heal you, not just to create a path for forgiveness of sin. The atonement is there to heal us. But Shelly, how could you trust anybody? Did you ever find a way to trust another human being? I've had so many experiences. It really came down to that the things that I've that I've learned uh, through my faith was were actually true. Heaven is real. The spirit world world is real. And so therefore, I had to step back and say, okay, what is the purpose of life? The purpose of life is for us to try to, to, to be tried and tested so we can grow. You don't learn as well when things are easy. I had to change my entire mindset about how I looked at adversity, how I looked at hard things, and then coming to the realization Yeah, I've been victimized uh, umpteen times by lots of people that never should have victimized me, but that's on them. And you know what? I've also been helped by more people and loved by more people than who victimized me. I knew that there was both good and bad in the world. And, and, And even my dad alone, not everything about my father was evil. My, my, my dad was the one letting me ride on his back like Shamu in the, in Lake Huron when I was a child. My dad was the one that after we went to Disneyland and I had leg cramps because I have flat feet rubbing my legs in the bathtub at three o'clock in the morning because I was in so much pain. My dad was the one that taught me every skill that I have. I, I could build a house from the ground up by myself because of what my dad taught me. My dad alone, who's a murderer, who who the world would see as pure evil, he is not pure evil. And that is why I love him still. You talk about how your mom has visited you in, in a number of 
occasions. Did you, has your dad ever? <sighs> Not as profoundly, but yes. And when your mom has come to you over your lifetime, as she looks down from heaven at you today, what would she say about you? She's proud of me. I know that. I, I don't come right out and say this, but I've had a couple, more than a couple conversations. My mother actually helped me write the book. <laughs> you know, I know that your mom, your mom is with you every day. Your loved ones are on the other side and they're with you, helping you and loving you and protecting you and doing what they can. But life isn't meant to be easy. It's meant to be hard. So we learn. We have to develop the characteristics of patience and humility and empathy and compassion till we get to the development of charity. And so you can't learn any of those lessons without enduring hard things. My adversity isn't any harder or easier than anybody else's because you are different than me and I am different than you. But you're loved by a heavenly father just the same as, as I am. And a loving parent is going to give all of their children the same opportunity for growth. And the only difference is what our strength and strengths and weaknesses are. We all get pushed to our very limits. So that's why we have to have compassion for each other. You know, a lot of people that I've talked to that have very strong religious grounding, and it could be Christianity, it could be Islam, it could be any anyone in many religions. Many of them feel that when they've gone through what a storyteller would call hell and come out the other side, that it's because they have a calling. There's a reason for you to be doing what you're doing. There's a reason that you've carried all of this in your knapsack. Do you feel that you have a calling going forward? I, I do. I, I I know that I have a unique position because like you said, you know, by by all practical means, if I was homeless, living under a viaduct with a needle in my arm, people would be like, well, don't you know what she's been through? So I know that I have a voice. Everybody's path is going to be different, but I'm at least giving one example. I'm proving that there is a path to healing no matter what you go through. I've gained so much from what I've lost because I have empathy that I wouldn't have. I, ha I have so much empathy and understanding. And I, I've never met anybody in my circle that I can't relate to something hard and be of service to them and serve them with empathy and not just sympathy. Cause there's a, there's a fundamental difference. You know, everyone wants to be understood, not just heard, but understood. And now I don't want people to suffer for 20 years before they, before they find their path to healing. I want to say, Hey, look, maybe try this. This is what worked for me. Don't learn the hard way like I did. I'm out here to tell you if you do X, Y, and Z, it works. I always end my shows with my three lessons learned. The first one is I celebrate the fact that you're willing to talk about having your mom come and visit you and help you write your book. And you do so knowing that there'll be listeners out there that just shake their heads. But I'm looking you in the eye and I know you've had those conversations. Second thing is, I think that one of the great lessons is you can't hide behind what seems like a white picket fence. But inside is just 
a toxic situation and you buried a lot of things over time and I, I congratulate you that you're trying to get other people not to keep them buried, not to be afraid of unlocking it and finding your path forward. And I think the final lesson is that you love your dad. I know why you loved your mom, but that you loved your dad because as you said, inside all is good and evil. One of the great lessons for all of us is to recognize that circumstance, environment, situations. As you said, your dad was a third generation product of a violent, abusive, alcoholic family tree. I'm just so proud that you're not carrying that on. In fact, you've taken that branch, you've torn it off, and you're using your life to help others. And you know, I'm going to give you the fourth one, which I'd never do. People don't just want sympathy, they want empathy. So for all of that and more, I think you're one of the most beautiful people I've ever interviewed. I began by saying I have no idea how this is going to be a story of positivity and possibility. But you know what? It is. I'm blessed that you joined me on the show today. Thank you so much, Tony. I, I'm really grateful for, for giving me the opportunity to, to share because I need people to hear so that they can heal. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.